following on from the last episode, Hannah chats with Simon, a doctor and anaesthetic registrar, about some other options for pain relief during labour and delivery, including spinal anaesthesia and epidurals. Are they safe? Who can have them? When do you need to decide by? We'll hopefully provide some clarity around that whole pregnancy spinal tap thing. Hi guys, today's episode is a little bit different because we're talking about pain relief options in labour and delivery. Now, last episode, we had a chat with a midwife called Mel about lots of the options for managing pain in this situation that don't require any medication. So things like the sterile water injections, TENS machines, baths and other things like that, as well as some of the first line medications available. In today's episode, we're going to focus a bit more on some of the other options that are out there. And to do that, I am joined by Simon. Welcome, Simon. Thanks, Anna. Thanks for having me. No worries. So, Simon, you're an anaesthetics registrar, correct? Yes. Can you explain to our listeners what that means? Sure. So essentially an anaesthetics registrar is someone who's training to become an anaesthetist. Uh, They are the people who are involved in looking after people's pain. And the vast majority of people who uh, have an operation will have an anaesthetist present. And if anyone has a spinal or an epidural during childbirth, then it will be an anaesthetist performing it. Cool. All right, so let's talk about pain relief in labour and delivery. I guess being an anaesthetist, you usually come in, you know, you're not the first port of call when it comes to managing pain in labour. Can you just tell us, I guess, first of all, what the difference is between a spinal and an epidural? Because I feel like people throw those terms around interchangeably, but they're not the same thing. Sure. So um, I suppose the, the first thing to comment on there is that sometimes we actually are very early involved in people's pain management. Um, a lot of people who are having planned caesareans actually will come to the anaesthetic clinic um, in the weeks or days leading up to actually having uh, their baby. But yeah, you're right. The vast majority of time, uh, if it's a healthy young person, then yes, we are a, an as required service as opposed to a, uh, something which is considered to be standard. So epidurals and spinals are both very similar and very different at the same time. So the difference is essentially where we put the medications into the body. So within the spinal column, there's a long sac which the spinal cord sits in. An epidural essentially goes around this sac, but not into it, whereas a spinal actually goes into the sac. And the process of putting one in is quite similar, but the difference once it's in is is actually quite significant. So uh, if we start with epidurals, so epidurals are, are very common. So around one third of women giving birth in Australia will have an epidural. And b- because they are so common, they've been very well studied and they're very safe during the childbirth process. We use an epidural during the labour process as it can be more controlled than a spinal anaesthetic and can last for much longer. And because we leave a small tube of plastic in the back, we can actually give top-up doses uh, as needed. And this is important because sometimes uh, labour only goes for a a couple of hours, whereas sometimes it can actually go for significantly longer. Um, And a spinal anaesthetic may not last for long enough to cover all uh, all of the pain associated with that. Yeah, okay. Uh, so spinals, we use spinals uh, most of the time for women having having caesareans, and this is usually um, planned or not super urgent caesareans. And this is because they work really quickly, they last for long enough that the operation can occur, and they provide really good pain relief after the operation for about 24 hours as well. Got you. And we're going to talk a bit more in detail, I guess, about both of those things, so epidural and spinal. But just briefly before we go into that, you know, anaesthetists are commonly using what we call PCA or patient-controlled analgesia. Sure. And people have that after lots of different types of operations and in different 
pain situations. Is mm-hmm. there a role for that in, well, I guess, firstly, what it is, what is it and is there a role for it in women who are laboring? Sure. Okay. So as you mentioned before, PCA is short for a patient controlled analgesia. Uh, this is essentially a machine that gives a small amount of medication when a patient presses a button. Uh, some PCAs are connected to the intravenous drip, which goes into the vein, and some are connected to the epidural catheter, and that's that small bit of plastic that I mentioned that we leave in the back before. The ones that are connected to the epidural catheter are called PCEAs, which stands for Patient Controlled Epidural Anesthesia. Uh, they give small amounts of local anesthetics, and these are very common during childbirth. Now, PCAs are usually the ones which are connected to the drip, and these give small amounts of morphine-like medication. These are relatively uncommon in our institution during childbirth. And the reason that we don't use this often is because if we give morphine-like medications to the mother, then they can often be transferred down to the baby. And one thing that we know about morphine-like medications is that they can slow your breathing, and we really don't want to do that when the child's just come out into the birth mm-hmm. because the, the actual process of being born is a very physiologically demanding process and we actually want the baby to be uh, as optimized as possible when they come out to be able to do that for sure that's good that you've clarified that because i feel like in movies you see a lot you know people in labor pressing buttons and that kind of thing so thank you for clarifying Mm. i guess specifically in terms of epidural this is the one that people probably hear most about what stage of labor can you get an epidural So there was a long-held belief that we needed to wait until a certain way into labour before performing an epidural, um, but we now know that this isn't the case. An epidural can theoretically be performed at any stage during childbirth, provided there are no medical reasons or what we call contraindications to do so. The logistics of this are often complicated towards the end of delivery uh, of the baby as the mother has to sit still for long enough for the procedure to take place. And if she's in uh, too much pain or if the baby's too far down, subsequently we might not be able to, to perform this. Mm-hmm. Uh, as childbirth is a process which generally gets more painful as it, as it goes along, having an epidural early is often a technique used for patients with high blood pressure or any other medical problems throughout their pregnancy. Got you. And I guess just for the listeners, because it's not always as clear as people think it might be when you go into labour. It's not like suddenly you're just in labour and everyone's aware of it, that there's usually a process of kind of actually diagnosing labour. And as you mentioned, famously, <laughs> labour gets more painful rather than less, one of the great tragedies mm-hmm. of, of life. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I guess the first stage of labour is when the cervix is going from not dilated at all up to 10 centimetres and really any time in there is safe, is that what you're saying? And then once you start pushing, it's probably not ideal because you're not going to be able to sit still. Yeah, I mean, certainly we do perform epidurals while contractions are occurring. We essentially just need there to be enough time that we can safely advance the needle because the needle that we use for an epidural is a lot larger than the needle that we use for a spinal. And one of the side effects of using a larger epidural needle is that if you do put that into the sac that surrounds the spinal cord is that you can cause a really nasty headache afterwards that can Mm -hmm. kind of last for a week or more um, and can actually require a second epidural uh, type procedure to to have to be performed. So with the epidural, if you're only going into the area around the sac, you Mm -hmm. were talking about before, and a spinal, you're going into it, why is Mm -hmm. the needle bigger for the epidural? So the main reason that we use two different types of needles is essentially that with an epidural, it's all about 
how it feels when you put it in um, and you get a very tactile response from from the larger needle right. when you use a small needle for a spinal anesthetic uh, that's because you want to make a smaller hole as you possibly can in the sac around the mm. spinal cord because the spinal cord essentially sits in a in a big column of fluid and so when you put a hole in in a bag of fluid then it leaks out and that's yep. what we're trying to minimize because that's the thing that causes mm. the headache got you i'm learning today too <laughs> so you've said that the actual process is pretty similar for the two can you just talk through like if somebody is wanting to have an epidural for labor or will need a spinal for a cesarean what can they expect that whole process to feel like or be like sure so so usually what will happen is that an epidural uh, will be requested or or a spinal if if it's a cesarean um, and then after explaining the procedure to you what the anesthetist will do is they'll get you to either sit or to lay down on the side of the bed and they'll feel your spine by pushing quite firmly in the, in the middle part of your lower back They'll then scrub, which essentially means that they put on gloves, gowns, a mask, and that's just to try and keep all the bugs away and to try and minimise the amount of infection uh, as much as possible. They then paint your back with some very, very cold medication, and then that's again to, uh, to minimise the risk of infection. They'll ask you to put your chin down on your chest and to push your lower part of your back out, and that's to kind of mimic an angry cat or the Sydney Harbour Bridge or <laughs> it's a always funny, like or essentially any kind of curved object <laughs> is essentially... <laughs> you always... Like the people that come in that are, have really good posture and like really struggle with that, but I reckon I'd be awesome at yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Got, Slouch the shoulders, yeah. hunched over. I have that's the perfect. worst posture of all time. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so then what we do is we put some local anaesthetic in the skin in the middle of your back, and that's just to make sure that when we put the, the larger epidural or the... Uh, spinal needle in that essentially you don't feel it going through the skin because that's the most painful part then through the numb patch of skin we put a longer needle uh, very slowly into the right place and this is the thing that i said before that we need to be really careful about so we just go really slowly in a really controlled manner uh, making sure that we get it in the right spot with an epidural this is this is the difference so with an epidural we put in we leave a small piece of plastic tubing in the back and as that actually as we insert that sometimes some people feel some electric shocks going down their legs that's perfectly normal and these go, go away by themselves in the next couple of seconds. With a spinal, however, um, women tend to feel that their legs go really warm and heavy mm. um, and then they start to, use the, start to lose the, the ability to move their legs within about 30 seconds or so afterwards. Spinal anaesthetics in particular are also fantastic at dropping people's blood pressure <laughs> and that makes people feel really vomity yeah. really quickly. And so we normally start some medication at the same time to try and stop that, but we aren't always able to do that. Yeah, okay. I kind of want to know what that feels like when you're that like sensation of your legs suddenly going numb from a very reversible cause. Like it, <laughs> it just seems like a weird sensation. And a lot of people kind of say that uh, it feels like that they've kind of wet themselves for about yeah, five seconds. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people kind of get a little bit anxious or nervous about that. And so we always make sure that people are fully aware of that beforehand so they don't yeah. feel like embarrass themselves. Yeah. And just on that, usually if you have a spinal anesthetic, someone will also put a catheter in so that, because obviously you can't yeah. walk. So. Yeah. And most of the time, most people um, usually can't actually feel that by that stage. They can't actually feel yeah. the, cath the catheter going in. Yeah. And so you said the spinal starts working within about 30 seconds like it's super super quick which yeah. obviously is ideal if you're wanting to start an operation soon after mm -hmm. for an epidural how long does it take before that actually starts working 
So it all it all kind of depends what medication we put down the epidural. So there's a couple of different types of local anesthetics. One of them works really quickly within a couple of minutes, but also doesn't last that long as well. And we use these ones for things called epidural top-ups. And this is if someone already has an epidural in and then they need to have a cesarean for baby distress or for whatever reason, um, then we use the really quick-acting one. But because uh, labour, as we mentioned before, is quite a long process, then usually we use a longer-acting local anaesthetic. Mm -hmm. And this is longer-acting, but also takes a little bit longer to work. And so this normally takes about 10 to 20 minutes or so to start working. Yeah. um, But does provide good pain relief once it it does start working. Yeah. And can people continue to use other types of pain relief in that period when they're waiting for it to work? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So quite often we actually get the women to be breathing on the nitrous or whatever other pain relief techniques they have been using um, while we're doing the the epidural. Such good folks, you anaesthetists. (laughs) I guess one of the things people are really concerned about when it comes to epidurals and spinals, I guess, as well, is what the risks are. And I can understand having a needle jabbing at your spine does seem a bit scary. Can you just explain what the actual risks are with these procedures? Sure. So it's certainly one of those things that sounds a lot uh, a lot scarier than what it actually is. The common ones are uh, what we call block failure, and that's essentially when it doesn't work as well as we'd like it to do. This occurs in about one in 10 patients or so. And this uh, one in 10 includes people who it only works on one side or it's kind of a little bit patchy where it kind of works on parts of one side and parts of the other side. And there are some things that we can do to try and tinker with that so that we don't have to do the whole procedure again. Sometimes you just need them to like lie on the other side, don't you? Yeah, exactly. So sometimes we can get people uh, lying on their side um, or lying flat or lying even a little bit head down, which is a little bit daunting for some people. They kind of feel like they're <laughs> going to fall off the end of the bed. <laughs> but uh, yeah, these are all things that we can do to try and avoid having to put another epidural back in. Okay. Um, so another common risk uh, is one of the things which we've already kind of mentioned, which is the severe headache in the days afterwards. And this occurs in about 1% of patients. Mm-hmm. And it is quite a severe headache. A lot of people do actually are kind of bedridden with this headache, which is obviously something that we're trying to avoid, especially when um, in any patient, let alone someone who's just given birth. Um, yeah. And then low blood pressure is another thing we've just covered before as well. And then, of course, there's kind of the, the less common ones, which are also more severe. So these are the things that everyone gets kind of quite quite anxious about. And these include things like a nerve injury, and these can either be a, a temporary injury or about uh, or, or a permanent injury. And so the chance of causing a temporary injury is about 1 in 10,000. And a temporary injury is something that lasts for uh, less than six weeks. So there's different definitions, but usually we say something less than six weeks. And the risk of permanent injury is around one in 100,000. Okay. And so that's, it's, sound, it's, it's a little bit kind of hard to get a grasp around one in 100,000 people. Mm. But the chance of being involved in a car crash is significantly greater than yeah. it is having any kind of nerve injury uh, from an epidural. Yeah. And we don't think twice about jumping in the car. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, once you've uh, kind of survived the car ride into hospital, then the chances are that the epidural is going to go better than that did. Yeah. Uh, and then there's Good other things you. like uh, infections as well. And this is uh, something which obviously doesn't kind of happen straight away, which usually happens in in kind of the days to weeks afterwards, which is something that everyone needs to be aware of. But again, it's something that's very uncommon to occur. Got you. And I guess just while we're commenting on the risks, none of this is specific medical advice. Obviously, you need to talk about your your specific medical history and situation with whatever doctor you're seeing. This is all just general information and general numbers. So obviously if you have specific conditions, these risks might be slightly different. Yeah, of course. So I guess our comment is just always that this is not specific medical advice for you. We're just having a general chat. 
Are there people who can't have an epidural in labour and who are they? So there are some what we call contraindications to having an epidural. So the first one is obviously anyone who doesn't want one uh, doesn't get one. <laughs> we that certainly is good. Uh, we certainly don't go around forcing people to be having uh, epidurals. Yeah. And uh, a lot. I of, mean, that would make a lot of extra work for you. I it, feel it would do. It would do. And uh, th- there is kind of a commonly held belief out there that a lot of the medical profession is trying to force epidurals or pain relief during childbirth on people. Uh, and this is certainly something that we that we don't want to do. That is what we call an absolute contraindication to doing an epidural. Yep. You know, there may be many reasons why someone doesn't want to have an epidural. Uh, maybe because they've heard of some uh, nasty complication either occurring to a family member or a friend or they've read about it on the internet or, uh, you know, whether or not this this information is uh, is correct. It's certainly worth discussing these either with, um, with your obstetrician um, or with the anaesthetist who may potentially be performing the procedure itself. Yeah. Uh, and then there's other things which uh, would mean that we would strongly need to weigh up the risks and benefits of an epidural. So this, uh, again, is things like infection. So whether someone's got an infection throughout the rest of their body or if they've got an infected piece of skin over the, the middle of their back, we would consider both of them to be uh, contraindications. Um, and then there are some uh, some central or spinal neurological diseases uh and again there's this is a a very complex area Mm. which would be a case-by-case discussion with the with the person performing the procedure itself and then other things which are kind of a bit more common are things like bleeding disorders um Mm -hmm. and the reason for that is because we're putting a needle into your back we don't want to cause a deep bruise which is thing called a hematoma uh, as that can actually kind of put pressure on nerves and uh and you know potentially the spinal cord as well which can cause some nasty problems yeah um and then along with that is anyone on kind of any what we call anticoagulant medications which essentially just makes people bleed a little bit more than than they otherwise would yeah so it sounds like overall most people should have this option available to them except in quite specific circumstances yeah yeah the the vast majority of the population um has no contraindications to having an epidural yeah and i guess we're chatting about it obviously today, but it's not to even necessarily advocate for it or to encourage anyone to necessarily access epidural. It's all just about knowing what options you have available to you so you can decide what you want and would like. And I guess it's always good too, because some people, like quite a lot of people will naturally want a bit of a plan for their birth and how they expect that to eventuate. But in obstetrics, nothing, you know, goes to plan that commonly. So it's good to just be aware of what options are available if things don't go to plan as well. So. Yeah, of course. And, and if your birth plan doesn't include an epidural, it doesn't mean that uh, that you can't have yeah. access to one later on. Exactly. You can always change your mind. With the epidural, so you've said it lasts longer because you can keep topping it up and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Say you have your baby super, super quickly. Yep. Are you kind of resigned to having numb legs for a long time after? Like how long will it actually take to wear off? Uh, so, yeah, so you're right. So uh, it doesn't necessarily last longer, but but we can make it last longer. So yep. once, once labor is over and baby's out, then there's no need to keep going with the medication. So we essentially just turn the medication off. Mm-hmm. Once you start getting full um, use of your legs again and everyone's happy, then we just pull a little bit of plastic tubing out. This is usually only a couple of hours afterwards. We actually do these things now called walking epidurals. Mm, I was going to ask you about those. Yeah, so this is essentially when we when we use a different cocktail of medication that we uh, that we 
put through the little bit of plastic, uh, which essentially means that we can still provide good pain relief, but we don't necessarily block the nerves which supply the legs. Uh, Now, even though it's called a walking epidural, this doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to be up and and walking around. Doing squats. Yeah, exactly. You know, no going to the gym with a walking epidural in place. Um, but what that does allow is it does allow for women to be um, more kind of involved in being able to position themselves um, and to get themselves as comfortable as possible um, as well. And most of the time, uh, if closely supervised by a midwife, then uh, women can get can get up and go to the bathroom and can kind of do, uh, you know, other things like, you know, sitting on an exercise ball or whatever the, um, you know, particular activity may may be. Uh, obviously, as long as it's supervised that you don't fall over because you are at a little bit of a higher risk yeah. of falling over with one of these in place. And so can anyone, if you are in the early stages of labour and you want an epidural and the anaesthetist anaesthetist comes to talk to you about it, can you say specifically, I want a walking epidural or is it more just like depending on what hospital you're at and that kind of thing? Yeah, it it certainly depends on what hospital you're at. So the um, hospital that I currently practice at almost exclusively uses these walking epidurals. Right. Yeah. It's certainly becoming more and more common over the last five to ten years. Cool. And this is maybe a bit of an unfair question because I know you're not an, an obstetric doctor, but... Hit me, Han. Does having an epidural make labour longer or, you know, more complicated or... Yeah, so there's there's certainly lots of uh, concern that putting an epidural will, will kind of make labour longer or will potentially affect the fetus. Um, and as I said before, one, one third of women having children have these and these have been extensively studied. So what we do know is that epidurals have no immediate effect on the baby itself. But they can sometimes make labour, the second stage of labour, yep. which is actually when, when the baby's going through the birthing canal, they can make that a little bit longer. Yep. And what we do know is that the the effects of the longer second stage labour um, don't appear to be any. So even though it takes a little bit longer, there doesn't yeah. seem to be any any effects from it lasting longer. Right. Okay. Um, and it's longer, but there's more pain relief. Yeah. And it often too gives people, like sometimes I'm not an obstetrician, but um, I know sometimes they if people have an epidural on board and you get to fully dilated, they give you an hour before you start pushing or an hour or so just to see if the baby will slowly descend, descend on its own because you've got that really good pain relief on board. So it sometimes, I guess from that point of view, means you get a bit of a break before you actually have to start trying to push the baby out. Yeah. So there are definitely advantages, but yeah, definitely yeah. risks as well. I suppose it's also worth covering in that point as well um, is the, 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 there is a, Perception within the wider community that if you have an epidural, that you're more likely to have a cesarean section as well. Yes. Um, and that's, uh, again, also been very well studied, and we know that that isn't the case. Right. What it does do, however, is that because it makes the second stage of labour a little bit longer, mm-hmm. there is um, a higher risk that forceps or what we call an instrumental delivery may need to be used. Yeah. And I guess. One of the good things, obviously, nobody is ever really aiming for an instrumental delivery or anything like that. But mm-hmm. having these types of analgesia or pain relief also, you know, you can keep topping them up through the delivery. And if any kind of stitches or anything need to happen after, you already have a really effective pain relief on board in those situations too. So 
another quasi advantage, I guess you might (laughs) say. (laughs) So how common, you mentioned already that some people can get quite a severe headache after an epidural. How common is that? Yeah, so this uh, this occurs in around 1% of the um, of the population of people who are having an epidural. Uh, so this is caused by what we call a, a dural puncture or an accidental dural puncture. And it's essentially when we, um, when we do put a hole accidentally using the needle in the sac that's surrounding the spinal cord. And this just allows the, the fluid that kind of bathes the, the brain and spinal cord to leak out into the lower back. Um, and so this happened, this accidentally popping the, the sac occurs in around one in 200 people right. and around 50% of those that get this dural puncture will have one of these nasty headaches. Okay. And is it something that kind of requires further surgery or like how do you manage those headaches? Yeah, so there, there's a couple of options to to manage a, what we call a dural puncture headache. Uh, and these are either we do nothing and see how it goes, or we can give medications such as caffeine tablets, or we can do a second procedure, which is called a epidural blood patch. And this is essentially where we put some of the patient's own blood via a similar epidural procedure um, into their lower back. And that essentially just acts as... Well, as a as a patch over the hole, and essentially like just a band aid. Yeah, exactly, a little blood band aid. <laughs> really fancy, yeah. fancy band aid. <laughs> nice. And so you mentioned that you've gone through all the risks of epidurals. Is there anything in addition for spinals that we should mention, or is it all pretty much the same? So all the risks are essentially the same for uh, both spinals and epidurals. Um, it's usually just the proportion in which they uh, they occur. So the low blood pressure after having a spinal occurs at a much, much higher rate than it does for, for women having having an epidural. Right. And just for those people who uh, they go into labour, they request an epidural and things don't go according to plan and maybe they do need an emergency caesarean, what do you do in those situations? Do they then get a spinal as well or what happens? That's a, uh, that's a great question. So essentially for someone who's having a cesarean section without uh, without it being a planned cesarean section, then there's really three options. And the first option is essentially that we use the epidural that's already in place and we give some very fast-acting local anaesthetic down through the epidural catheter, down through the piece of plastic going into the back. Um, and this essentially allows there to be enough pain relief that we don't need to do any kind of general anaesthesia or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that's the first option. The second option is uh, is a general anaesthetic, and that we would use if uh, if the baby really needed to come out now, um, or if the epidural wasn't particularly working that well. Yep. The third option is if uh, the epidural is not working well, but there's no kind of huge rush to go and get the baby out, kind of you know within the next few minutes, uh, and that could be a spinal anaesthetic. Um, sometimes we can't perform a spinal if someone's had an epidural in, especially if there's been lots of medication put down there. And that's just because of one of the risks of a, uh, of a spinal anesthetic is that it is uh, a thing called a high spinal. That's essentially when instead of just making your legs go numb, it makes your legs and your arms go numb as well. Yeah. Okay. Um, and potentially even higher than that. Yeah. 
And I guess just on that, because obviously for a lot of people, if this kind of thing happens, it can be quite traumatic if you're, you know, thinking you're going to have a nice, lovely, normal birth and then suddenly you've got to have an emergency cesarean. Um, So just as a side note, I would say, you know, a lot of places would encourage you to come back and see the obstetrician for a debrief anyway. But if it's missed or whatever, please request it because it's really helpful for you to get some idea about why that happened and how it all eventuated when you're kind of in a different headspace because it's not that easy to think clearly when you're in the throes of labor so yeah absolutely it's just a random side note at the, uh, the institution that i work at we uh will always see women the the following day who've had either a spinal anesthetic or or an epidural anesthetic as well yep. just to see how they're going yeah good so I guess just to summarise, both epidural and spinal anaesthetics are really commonly performed procedures here in Australia. Uh, they're often done in slightly different situations, but carry similar risks and contraindications. It's always a nice idea to have a, a birth plan, uh, so you feel like you have a goal or an ideal situation, but it's definitely worthwhile being aware of all the pain relief options in case things don't go exactly according to plan. If you have any questions or comments about anything that we've discussed today, please feel free to join our Facebook group and we also have an Instagram page. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Han. Bye. You to you, you to me, you to us is a podcast for general discussion only. Nothing we talk about should be taken as personal medical advice and it does not substitute information or instructions given to you by your own doctor. If the podcast raises any questions or concerns for you, please see your GP, sexual health or family planning clinic. For general discussion, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And please stop trusting strangers on the internet with your health. This podcast is a production of Simo Interactive, home of the My Millennial Money podcast. Podcast.